So, um, we'll turn, if you have your Bible here, and you can with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, before we read, um, let me just give you a recap of what we've done so far. For those who are just joining us, and for those of us who have been coming, just to refresh your memory of what we've, uh, we've done so far. Remember, uh, Brother Chris took us through First Timothy chapters 1 and 2. And a little bit about the background of the book, we are told that Paul wrote this epistle to young Timothy. Now, Timothy comes from a place we call Lystra and Derby, if you know first, uh, Paul's first missionary journey. And we are told when he met Paul, he was about 15, 16 years. And then Paul, we are, we are told, or most theologians believe that he was saved during Paul's first uh, missionary journey. So Paul comes back for his second missionary journey. And then uh, at this time, Timothy is around 20 years. And then he's assigned to pastor the church in Ephesus. And that is where this letter uh, goes to him. So imagine Timothy, a young man, pastoring in a big city church, and with all the, if you know Ephesus, Ephesus is full of idolatry, licentiousness, loose living, and some of them have also come from uh, Judaism into Christianity, so they are trying to mix the gospel with all kinds of Old Testament, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, as a background to the book, you notice that Paul is teaching the church, okay? Paul is teaching the church to be able to confront the false teachers and false teaching. Okay, so we come across these in the chapters. So, the very first chapter, Paul mentions doctrine, apostolic doctrine, or the word of God, how important it is. In other words, if you don't have the true word, you wouldn't know how to live. Okay? So Paul stresses doctrine in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he stresses worship. Okay? And he talks about prayer. Who should, should we pray for? Kings. Pray for ordinary people. And then he, he also discusses the role of women in the church. We discussed that last week for those of you who were here. And we looked at the controversies as we talk about the feminist movement that is happening around us. So people say, for instance, that Paul was a, a male chauvinist and he was anti-women and he didn't want women to be teaching and preaching and leading the church and stuff like that. Now we ask, are, are women not sometimes even more educated than men? They are. And, I mean, women can do what men do, but when it comes to leading the church and uh, being deacons and all of that, uh, the, the instructions are very clear. So Paul continues that teaching in chapter 3, and we'll, we'll read that shortly. So this is just to give you a brief background of what we've been discussing this past four or five weeks or so, mm -hmm. all right? So, uh, can a good reader, I like good readers too, read, uh, we'll read from verses one to 15, one to 15 of First Timothy chapter three. 
with somebody reading for us. Okay. First Timothy 3, 1-15. 1-15, yes, thank you. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires the noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that it is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Michelle. I just remind uh, can somebody please turn to Acts 20 verse 28 for us? Acts 20 verse 28. I want to point out something before we delve into our discussion. Acts 20, 28. Okay. Yes, please. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Amen. Now, I want you to take note of that little phrase there. Take heed of the flock for which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, uh, these terms are used interchangeably. Overseers, bishops, pastors, elders, same office. Okay. Overseers, bishops, pastors, Elders, and then we have the deacons. Okay, so those two offices are very important for the New Testament church. So let me ask you Paul says that in our text, if any man desires the position of a bishop, okay, he desires a good work. But in Acts 20 28, Paul says that it is the Holy Spirit who makes or puts these people into office. So how do we reconcile that? In one sense, it says it's the Holy Spirit who puts people into office. But here he says that a man must desire that office. How do we reconcile these two ideas? Is he saying different things? Yes. Just that the Holy Spirit will make them desire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Any other contrary view? If it's the Holy Spirit, yes. Some say 
delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I don't think that's in contradiction at all. It can be both. Okay. It doesn't have to just be one. Yes. If you're walking So, yes, pastors go to Bible school. Yes, we vote for pastors into office, especially if there's a search or uh, a team that is put in place to recruit pastors. Or for deacons, we vote people into office. But it is the Holy Spirit who superintends over the process. Okay? It is a good church. All right? This week or so, I saw a Christian Post article that mentioned uh, how many of you know T.D. Jakes? I understand that he has installed his daughter, who is a divorcee or so, and I think another young man, I think to kind of take over after him or something like that. In the Porter's house and something, things in Texas or something like that. It was a little bit, I mean, it's not just if you come to Ghana, most of the charismatic churches, you know, big, big churches, making money, when they get old, they put their, their sons there. They make sure their sons take over after them. All right? And usually, people take offense because they've been working with other pastors, okay, all this while. But when it comes to succession, they want to put their sons there. I don't know why that's... Is there some kind of a precedent for that? It's called nepotism. <laughs> you know? So, I bring this out for you to know some of the contemporary things happening today. But scripture says that, you know, a man must first desire that office and then he must be qualified. So I want you to take a look at the list. Uh, in fact, there are about 10 for pastors, the first one is a general term. He must have a good reputation. I want you to look at the list, okay? Uh, for your notes, I've given you kind of the big um, ideas there, but the uh, qualifications are there. You have the family, family qualification, then you have the personal qualification, then his qualifications outside the church, okay? So I ask you, what is it that stands out? What do you find surprising? Okay, what do you think is very interesting? Uh, something that you didn't, you've not really thought about, but it's there. So that now, perhaps you, it, it helps you to look at your pastor in, this, in, in, in a different light. What is, what, what, of the, which of the qualifications do you find interesting? Uh, you find convicting, it's serious business. Okay, remember, the Holy Spirit who is superintending over, okay, which of the qualities. Now remember, we are not just here talking about only pastors. Every quality there should be something that every one of us should aspire to. Okay, every single one of us here should aspire to those qualities. So it's not just for leaders, it's for every Christian, okay? So, uh, let's take the first one. It must be blameless. Uh, that's a big picture. Husband of one wife will come there shortly. Blameless. What does it mean? Nothing, nothing you can reproach him with. Mm -hmm. He'll stay on his task. Failure won't. That doesn't mean he has to be perfect. Does yes. It? 
Yes. None of us is perfect. Okay? But let me ask you, would you be comfortable with a pastor who has been fingerprinted before, years before, by the police? Would you be comfortable with a pastor? Okay. When he was saw. Would you be comfortable? I think it depends on what he was. <laughs> well, you know, what he was accused of. Okay. Or guilty. Was okay. A traffic ticket. Or <laughs> <laughs> traffic ticket and murder. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I was just reading something this past week, and I. First or second Samuel, it was about David, and he's called uh, righteous. Uh-huh. So Jesus is our righteousness for mm-hmm. sure, but it's also his. Some of his acts were actually mm-hmm. really, really good. Mm-hmm. Some of his acts were horrible, mm-hmm. but some of them were good. And the Bible seriously does. I mean, you know, God, Holy Spirit inspired <laughs> David probably, or whoever wrote First or Second Samuel, to say that he was um, uh, righteous. Yeah. So. I would say blameless doesn't necessarily mean perfect. Yeah. So let me ask you, uh, usually I think some of you have served on pastoral committees before. Uh, how do you do a background check of somebody who you are hoping to hire? How do you do a background check? Does anybody know? Have any idea? Uh, is it important to do a background, background check? Yes. Uh, how do you do that? Besides the legal, the legal, a, a formal background check, you should do that. But also check with previous employers, um, other churches, you know, seminary professors, you know, people that that have been around this person and experienced them personally. Okay. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So, like, yeah, when Tim was on the other side, not necessarily here. Um, one thing people would do is not just take his references, but then ask his references for references, so that you're not just hearing from like the particular candidate's best friends, but maybe another level, <laughs> which I think is smart. Yeah. All right. I'm sure uh, those of you are who work for people, okay, there are some occupations where you need to show reference, okay? And then some even, even uh, when I did a year of substitute teaching in California, I had to go through fingerprinting for you to, I had to wait for about a week, a week and a half, for it to run through the system to show that you are not, you know, you don't have a criminal record. Exactly, criminal record and all of that. Even sometimes when you have to travel to another country, in some instances, you have to get a police report, Mm -hmm. okay, to show that you are clean, okay, and all of that. So I'm saying this because even in secular jobs, at least people do some kind of, so that they want to know the kind of person they are hiring. So in the house of God, we could, we can't do, I mean, we can't be perfect, but at least some due diligence must be done, right? Right, but we agree that, I mean, a person's past may not necessarily have to disqualify the person and all of that, depending on the fact that the person is growing in grace, so let's come to the husband of one wife. In fact, I understand that the original means a one woman man. A one woman man. Now that can be interpreted <laughs> in a, a, one, 
a one-to-one -one man. It's at it, as it is, but what do you think of it? Uh, let me hear you. All right, and then yes. Uh, I think it means a husband, wife, one wife. One wife, okay. In the Old Testament, uh -huh. when that law was made, mm -hmm. they had to do that because the Hebrews had multiple wives. Okay. And to be a pastor or a deacon, you could only have one. So they actually had to get rid of a few of them. Okay. <laughs> so it wasn't one woman forever, period, end of story. Uh -huh. Our ex-pastor wouldn't qualify to be here because after Virginia passed away, he got married again. Yeah. That's two wives. Okay. So I don't take it the one wife only forever. Okay. Because one wife at a time. I was going to ask that, but we know, for instance, C.S. Spurgeon was called into pastorate when he was Third. very young. 23. Yes. I don't think he was married. I, think I don't he think he was. Not. Not. No, he was oh, not. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's not get into <laughs> All right. So, uh, single uh, people could be called into the pastorate, but of course the due diligence, like you said, should be done. Okay, and a one-woman man doesn't mean that you know the person should be divorced so many times and that kind of thing. I think even that raises some suspicions, but a divorcee does not necessarily. I mean, that that bit of his life does not necessarily bar him from becoming a pastor. But let me ask you, to make it more interesting, would you be comfortable going for counseling from a, with, a, with a pastor who has been married, let's say, two times before? I just, I, I listened to, I've heard some teaching on that. If you are a Christian and then you divorce and you had a covenant, with God to be married, you didn't take that covenant very seriously. And so if you are a Christian and you didn't take a covenant very seriously, that's kind of a big deal. And that should probably disqualify you from being a pastor. Okay. I, I used to listen to Dr. Charles Stanley a lot. And he was divorced at one point. And what I, what little I know about it, it wasn't something he initiated. Okay. But he never remarried. Okay. And so... He was the husband of one right. wife, <laughs> and even though he was divorced, I, I mean, this has been an ongoing <laughs> discussion here for yeah. years. Uh, and then I yes. just would like that. I think the remarried part needs to probably be tempered with why did you get divorced? Yeah. Did mm -hmm. did they leave you? Did they commit adultery? Yeah. Which mm -hmm. is, that's a biblical reason yes. to get divorced. So then you can get remarried. Yeah. But if you just got tired because she didn't clean the house well, right. or something <laughs> like that, that's not a biblical reason. Right. Uh, we're living at, in an age where marriage, divorce, and remarriage has become very topical. You know, for a lot of people, I mean, it's so easy to break the marriage covenant. So easy. But for the Christian, you know, you really want to seek the face of God, think through the implications of whatever you know, you are, you're going to decide, you say. Of course, there are certain instances of every case is different, but I believe that, you know, I think Pastor Tim has done a lot of sermons on uh, marriage and 
divorce and remarriage and all of that. So I wouldn't want to deliver the point. But Paul said that for this office, he must be a one woman man. Okay? But you shouldn't read all kinds of things into it. But it's a one woman man. I don't know what that means. <laughs> a one woman man? Yeah. It should be married to your wife. Just one. Yeah. Just one, yes. But like you say, that, uh, yes, like you said, if somebody, <laughs> let's say, before he became a Christian, got divorced before a Christian, became a Christian, and he's lived faithfully with a new wife for five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty years, I don't think that should bar him from becoming a pastor or a deacon if he's been called by God to do that. All right? Yes. A one woman man. <laughs> okay. Uh, temperate, okay, that means uh, not out of control, sober, or sober-minded. What does it mean? What does your Bible say? Uh, temperate, sober-minded, not out of control. Uh, just in case I forget, please, we are talking about pastors and deacons, but if you are somebody who is hoping to get married, probably these are qualities you might want to look at. They say, these are qualities you might want to look at. It's not just for men, but also for women. Alright? So the young people, I hope you are writing things down. <laughs> you need to take notes. Okay. You are looking for a husband, not a, a smooth talker. No, you need these are the qualities, okay? Right, uh, of good behavior. What does it mean to you? Of good behavior, of good behavior, well behaved, okay, respectable, well ordered, okay, um, hospitable. Hospitable, hospitality. Okay, you, have, you, you show loving. Uh, uh, you, you show love to strangers. You are kind to strangers. You show mercy toward those who are outside your own family. They say, Chris. Just I heard something this week. It was interesting. It was from someone that had been to, like behind the scenes at a major conference. Mm -hmm. Just throw some names out there: Bodie Bachman, Stephen Lawson. You know, uh, John MacArthur, you know, big names. And he said when they would sit down and have a meal, one of them would get up, get some coffee, and they fill everyone's coffee at the same mm -hmm. time. And there was, he said, these men of God mm -hmm. didn't feel that it was above them mm -hmm. to serve their fellow man. Yeah. And he said that's that's a mark mm -hmm. of someone who has been called. Yeah. Wonderful. So let me ask you, based on what you said, is it possible that? Some people do that in the church, but in their home, they won't do that for their wives. Mm -hmm. Is it possible? There are some people who behave well in the church when they meet other Christians, but in their home, they don't do all this service to their wives and children. Is it possible? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I just think the key is in like what you're saying is, is 
their, their heart needs to be other-centered as opposed to self-centered. You know, whether they're serving someone or even treating their family at home or inviting other people or there's no room for pride, it's a humble thing that you get to bless others in whatever way it is all the time. It's a condition of your heart and it's a direction of your heart as opposed to just outside acts. It's really who you are. Thank you. Just adding on to that, the humility, mm-hmm. a man of God should be humble in the fact that he was called, yeah. not walking around, mm-hmm. handing out his business cards. Oh, I'm a pastor, <laughs> you know, wearing a jacket that says clergy across the back or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next quality says able to teach. A pastor should be able to teach. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the office is called pastor teacher. Okay, I've had people say so. He's a good pastor, but he's not a good teacher. He teaches well, but he's not a good pastor. Usually when people say that, for instance, they say things like this. Oh, my pastor never visits me when I'm sick. You know, he doesn't. But he stands and teaches and preaches wonderfully. He doesn't visit the sick and things like that. Would you fault? Which one is more important? The Bible says that. I mean, pastors should try and visit, but the most important thing is that they must give themselves to the word of God and prayer. Uh, One danger is that one man was saying, we've saddled pastors with so many other things so that they don't have time for the word of God and prayer. We need to kind of free them so that they can spend more time and the word and then prayer. Of course, I, very good pastors, they also find time to do the visitation and take calls and uh, all the consultation and all of that. Right. So you must be able to teach. Right. I think when we recruit pastors, we allow them to come and uh, do some um, kind of observation. You know, we observe and then before we vote them. All right. So that you can at least say that they can teach. Right. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be violent. Mm-hmm. Violent. Is it important? Mm-hmm. Have you seen pastors who are violent before? It's yes. possible. Yes. yes, Pastor Tim. I just was going to mention the fact that it, it, it just fascinates me. I've sat on multiple ordination councils and the church recognizes whether a pastor has been called or not. And there's a big deal made about his doctrine and his abilities to understand scripture. But I have noticed in the past 20 years, there's little question asked about his character. It would seem that from this passage of scripture, I'm not saying this is to the exclusion of Titus, but this passage makes it very clear that character matters most. Being able to teach is like three words among a boatload of other words that all have to do with character. And it seems like here in America especially, we have gotten the cart before the horse or things have been turned upside down where we, if he's good at doctrine, we make sure he's got all his T's crossed and his I's dotted. But then they, their character is woefully lacking. But n- no questions have been asked about that. Like, how are you with your finances? Mm-hmm. You know, but to now churches are doing credit checks on pastors. 
Does he have a lot of outstanding debt, like credit card debt? Mm -hmm. You know, does he pay his bills on time? Mm -hmm. That's a character issue. Mm -hmm. That's not a, is he able to teach? I, I think a pastor should be able to teach. That's obvious. That kind of goes along with what he is being, you know, a spiritual leader. But I just think that so often we focus on that little. I've been in too many ordination councils where that's all they do is ask about what do you believe and you never ask about, so, you know, do you beat your wife? Mm -hmm. You know, how are things at home? Mm -hmm. uh, what do your children say about you? You know, how about your neighbors? Mm -hmm. Do they, you know, would there be enough evidence to convict you mm -hmm. of being a Christian by the way you act mm -hmm. in your neighborhood? So, anyway. I think there'd be a difference there between a head knowledge and a heart heart knowledge. If you have a head knowledge, you have the doctrine, you can sit down with someone and have a conversation with them, and they lay everything out to you. They know the gospel, and but how they live their life is the heart knowledge. Is it is it really a part of their life? Like your theology should be practical, and yes. the way that you live yes. should Absolutely. demonstrate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. You shouldn't be quick-tempered, violent, uh, not a bully, or quarrelsome. Have you seen a pastor who is a bully in the pulpit before? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you meet some pastors and they use the pulpit to bully their people. That's where they take it out on the, on the congregation. You see? So, uh, but gentle, forbearing, kind, considerate, how does gentility look like? So this is a gentle person. German. Do we say gentle woman? <laughs> yes. We would use the word meekness, that's just strength under control. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. It's as straight as that. It's also a fruit of the spirit, which yes. means that should be characteristic of yes. all believers. Not just pastors. Yes. Have you seen a couple arguing before? And then even neighbors can hear what is going on. Is that gentility? See, I'm saying this because you know sometimes you know, when we come to church, we have our best behavior, but in our homes, that is where the real character shows. Um, I think you've heard of some of these stories where. A man was being buried and then the pastor was saying all kinds of flowery things and those who knew the man <laughs> does this man know what he's talking about, you know? Mm -hmm. We don't speak evil of the dead. But when people die, people say all kinds of things. You see? Anyway. Right, uh, not quarrelsome. I say in light, not disposed to fight or quarrel. <laughs> But let me just give you an incident that I was in an Uber where uh, one of our busted buses, there's a driver, on weekends he drives his own Uber. So one time I picked him to Walmart and then I think somebody tried to cross him at a, uh, somewhere. And then he said, you picked the wrong one. You picked the wrong one, <laughs> you know, so he was ready to get out of the car to go and fight. You know, 
I tell him, I said, man, we don't have time. Yes. <laughs> no, but it was just funny. He said, you pick, you pick the wrong ones. <laughs> it was just funny the way he blended it. It means that he's used to, you know, having that kind of <laughs> thing. Right. Let's move on to the next one. One who rules his own house well. Okay. If his children are not in submission, how can he take care of the church? Do you think it's a very good uh, that Paul is talking about here. Okay. If you rule your house well, then you'll be able to take care of the church well. But it's always coming. It, it, it should we hold pastors accountable? How can you tell if a pastor is not ruling his house well? I mean, if you knew it before you hired someone, uh -huh. that maybe your, you know, the children are out of order or whatever, then but you may not disqualify. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you don't always know. Yeah. But I hope we understand. Okay, and if a pastor is able to take care of his household, most likely he will be able to. Because both situations, your patience will be tested. But you're still dealing with humans, humans and human yeah. children. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. if a pastor's kid, you know, gets caught, I don't know, graffiti, you know, petty theft or something like that, does that automatically disqualify him from the pulpit? Because, no, you know, it's like when you were talking about this before, she looked case by case. Mm -hmm. You know, is this a pattern? Are, you know, three of his seven children in jail. Okay, now we need to start, start you know. Yeah, and then, and then that whole thing with the children in the household, you have to also hold it to the same time, that raise up your kids in the way they should go, and they will never depart it. And the fact that that is just a generality. It is not a promise. It's from Proverbs, and it may not work out that way. Right. I mean, even in Scripture, you have uh, Samuel's sons. They took bribes. They were not like their father. Eli's sons. Same, the other example. So, we, we, I had a, a former pastor who, um, again, he was a pretty stern, harsh, you know, and he had he had a couple sons, but one daughter, he was just so hurt on her, just lacking in love or whatever. And eventually, when she was 15, she just ran off with a guy. And of course, he was devastated wanting this, you know, kind, kind of, she walks out the door, he has a ruler to measure her skirt leg, kind of thing, like that, that strict. Well, I, I appreciate the fact that she, you know she ran off and whatever, and um, he stepped down. Yeah. I mean, he's a PhD that was supposed to his life given it, um, and he just stepped down from the ministry again mm -hmm. to get his own house in order, basically mm -hmm. realizing you know the humbling aspect of that. And God worked on his heart, realized how he had not shown her love, which is you know not just not just discipline because discipline can you know push your kids away. It's, he wasn't, you know, and she came around and became a very God, and he ended up becoming a missionary to Africa, you know, and, and whatever. But I'm just saying, I think that I appreciated his taking this seriously. He's like, okay, obviously, I don't have my house in order. I need to step down. And he started, he's a PhD, started delivering pizzas and, you know, those kinds of things, which was also difficult. But, you know, I just, I, you know, everybody would have issues sometimes, you know, in their families or whatever. It's like, are you dealing with them or not, you know? That's uh, uh, like what you're saying. I, I think I should have mentioned this earlier. You have, uh, I think, 
for, for Russia, one of the preachers around many times he tell, he always keeps saying, if his marriage broke down, his ministry will be over. And he keeps repeating that. Then I have a situation in Ghana where a big archbishop, I mean, openly divorced the wife, and then it was just business as usual. We were just, we just went on and on and we married you know, an African-American woman and then we are just moving along. And a lot of people raise questions. How is this man, what moral justification would he have on the members of his church who may also be contemplating voting? I mean, this, um, I said it was just in the news. I mean, it, it, it was like nothing had happened. Nobody could call him to what nobody because you know he has a, this this big I mean, church, and then he's been raising these bishops. And then when he realized that they were all bishops, then he raised his position to an archbishop, and he started wearing the same thing like the Catholics, you know, wear and all of that. And it's it's all over. You see, so some people they don't really care. Yes, Pastor. I'm going to say, having lived on both sides, I was the son of a pastor, and now I have been a pastor and help pastors. Um, one thing that I've noticed, and I'm not, I'm not making any observation or criticism from Trinity. Okay, so just so you know, <laughs> this is not my point, but to show grace to preachers' kids, because many times they feel like they're living in a fishbowl. Mm -hmm. Everybody looks at it and if a preacher's kid steps out of line, does something that is wrong yeah. and is not right, that it's like it's worse than if it was just a member of the church at the time. Mm -hmm. um, having also, while I was a pastor, I had a, a son who uh, ended up getting kicked out of Bible college because of his behavior and involvement with some illegal substances. Uh, one of the first things I had to deal with as pastor of the church I was pastoring was bringing my son, who was a member of the church, before the church for church discipline because of that. That is not a pleasant experience. <laughs> uh, but it was a good experience for him He's walking with Jesus now. Um, but it was very humbling. And I went through that questioning period in my life. Well, you know, I'm the pastor. This is my child. He's still under my roof. Um, you know, should I step down? So I went to the leadership of our church and I asked, should I step down? And because of his age and because of the offense, it was it was determined by the leadership of our church that I shouldn't. But we did have to go through the whole discipline process, which was not pleasant for me, because I was asked to carry out the discipline <laughs> as the pastor. So, um, but just the point is to give grace um, when difficult situations arise. Um, I've been very cautious in criticizing others when things occur like that because I know that I could fall into sin just as easily as the next person yeah. and know that my children are capable of doing 
bad things that would, yes, be an embarrassment to me, but at the same time would put a, a blot on the, the gospel. And to be cautious and careful about that in criticizing others, but at the same time managing my own household well. And so it's a delicate balance, uh, but as someone who's been on both sides, <laughs> uh, just be kind and be gracious. Ask yourself the question, what would I, how would I want to be treated if my child stepped out of line and did something that was horrible and sinful? Yeah, just to add to what you're saying, you know, uh, I've been here since uh, 2019. And uh, I think I've shared this with Pastor Tim before. I'm just a young man, but Pastor Tim, I mean, he's not here, so I can say. <laughs> he's one of the most open pastors I've ever seen. Because he shares everything in his life with the congregation. You know, when he's struggling, he'll tell us, let's pray. When he's doing, I'm here, let's pray. And I tell you, I said, pastors I've met, we don't, they, 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 don't, they are not that open with their members. Mm. You know, and that is a very good sign. Yeah. So, I'm even surprised. Look at, he's been going for, every week he's telling the church where, what he's doing, what's happening, you know. Not many pastors will do that. Mm. To be able to open yourself to the congregation. So I think that we have a very good pastor. Amen. You know, and we should be grateful to God. You know. Amen. You can't accuse your pastor of something you and, and you you will be able to defend your pastor. But in some instances, I'm, I'm sure no, you may not. In some churches. You know. So it's a very good sign. And for us as believers, I think. We cannot open our lives to everybody, but at least for those of us who are, if you are close to somebody, just share your grievances and, you know, it helps so that we all pray for each other. Okay. Right. Uh, you have a, this is a very important quality, not a novice, not a novice. Not a novice means you shouldn't be a, a baby in, in, in the faith, okay? So let me ask you this question. Some seminaries years ago, before you could sign up, before you could be enrolled as a seminary student, you should have been serving in your church for not less than 10 years before you are allowed to join the seminary. Okay. Now, these days, of course, it's just open. In most seminaries, young people can just join. But considering some of the things that can happen, do you think? That ten year thing was in that was good because at least it gave the local church. But usually it was the local church that sent somebody to the seminary because they might have observed certain things, being with you served, you served in so many capacities and then what do you think? If the person should not be a novice a baby in the faith to hold that high office. There's there's a part of that that like you said, not a novice that that you know they have had a chance to experience some things going on. In that 10 year period, you have a chance to get married, start a little bit of a family because a lot of struggles, that's where it is. How did you handle, you know, there's those, that dichotomy sometimes that exists. The life you lead in the minivan on the way to church 
<laughs> in the life that people see in the church. You know, but they have a chance to live that and they can counsel better when they've been through those struggles. What about the case for the new faith who is vibrant and showing the desire and all of that? Should we take a second look at the person? I think sometimes a young person can be called by God quickly. And I think many times they have developed from their youth uh, training in, you know, in the family, in serving, in the church. Um, I know a couple of young missionaries that, man, they, coming out of high school, were far above I ever was. And their dedication and knowing that the God has called them. So I wouldn't count out young people being ready to serve if they've gotten their training well from birth and or even as God has specifically gifted them. And I agree that yes. that, that can happen. Uh, you look at there's a pastor named H. B. Charles that was sixteen years old that had been serving in the church and his dad died. And the elders instituted him into the pulpit. He was he was the elder of the church at 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So that happens, but I think it's a good guideline for that 10, 10 year period, you know, or at least have something set up. It could be seven years or five years, but something set up so you can see how someone handles. Yeah, I had an acquaintance from Africa, mm -hmm. and he told me when I turned 40. Mm -hmm back almost eight years ago, he told me that now you can become an, an elder in my church. So in this oh. place in Africa, you could not be an elder oh, until you were 40. Mm -hmm. Just by age or maturity? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Timothy was young. Well, yes, because... He was. Yes, there should be that balance. There are some young people who are more mature. He can be 20, but he's more mature than a 40-year-old man. There's good choices. So that should not buy, but they are, they are few, few and far between there. Well, the reason why there's that age discrepancy that kind of is fluid is because one of the, the titles for pastor is elder. Mm -hmm. And how can you call a 20 year old <laughs> They have not lived long enough and experienced enough life to be able to be known as an elder. So that's, that's part of the reason is because of the function. Yeah. I remember years ago, the, a, a couple, the, the, a woman was a Christian, the husband was not. And then the woman was in the church and she was having problems with the husband. So they called her, she complained to the elders and two deacons and then the pastor. Unfortunately, the pastor was much younger than the man, you know, <laughs> and then when they got to the house, the man took offense. Why do you bring this young man, this young boy, to come in? <laughs> you know, this I mean, he, he wouldn't have it. So eventually, I mean, they learned from that. So subsequently, the older deacons were the ones who took up some of those issues like that. Uh, you know, sometimes the age thing. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, our time is up. I, I thought we could have gone. Yeah, I really like how um, it was pointed out that a 
a qualification for an overseer is just that they can teach. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say shepherd. So as someone who loves Psalm 23, y'all know I love Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the pastor is my shepherd, and I just think that that's kind of an interesting thing. That, yeah. yeah. What else? What else? Right. We need to pray for our pastors. It's a very difficult job. In fact, when you read First Timothy, one of the impressions you get was that, especially in chapter 1, it's like Timothy feels like quitting, possibly because of the pressure. But Paul writes to encourage him, ask you to stay. You see, so ministry is, is, is difficult. Anybody, if I was a Sunday school superintendent for so many years, a wonder leader for so many years, we work with people. Handling people is no joke, even from my little limited experience. So talk about the church. Right? He has a family, he has another family in the church. And it's easy to, to, to I mean, so many churches have lost their pastors because of the pressure. So we have something, I think it's been around for almost 20 years or so, right? That's, that's something. So let's bow down our heads and pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to look into your holy word. Father, we know that in so many ways we fall short of these qualities. Yet, oh God, your word says that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Oh Lord, help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray for our pastors. We appreciate them. Father, may you continue to strengthen their work with you. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your patience. We'll continue, Lord. We'll see you.